On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Michael Allen about all sorts of things related to theological method, the doctrine of God, and dogmatics. So we cover topics like those and others, like what does it look like for theology to actually fear the Lord? Why is theology important for the life of the local church? What is retrieval? What is its promise for theology? What really is the interplay between scripture and other authorities like tradition? Is it okay to be catechized first? And only then are we capable of reading the Bible well and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. I'm joined by Jacob Denhollander today, and we are a podcast and intellectual center for serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we always try to mention this intellectual culture idea of something that we're trying to create and cultivate. Things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. So this charity piece of being... uh, Catholic in some sense and being open to others and uh, interested in their ideas. Curious, not in the vain sense, but curious and just, I want to love people better. So I want to understand why they think the way they think. Thinking critically is sort of just something that uh, I think of Mark Knowles, the scandal of the evangelical mind, trying to renew a seriousness when it comes to the project of theology. And then a cheerful confessionalism goes to sort of that uh, idea of We're not curmudgeons, um, and we realize that there is something that we can all affirm in common, like the ecumenical creeds, and we want to emphasize those sort of things, but without de-emphasizing our own Protestant convictions, de-emphasizing our own, for for me and Jacob, our Baptist convictions, we can still be robust in those sort of things while understanding what's primary and being happy about that. And so that's, I think that really helps us to be able to engage properly with, with all sorts of people. Now, today I am thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Michael Allen. If you don't know Dr. Allen, you should. Uh, he's written an insane amount of material, and it's all awesome. So today we're actually going to be talking about two volumes, primarily focusing on one of them, I think. So he's got these two new with TNT Clark, The Fear of the Lord, and then The Knowledge of God. And they're both in paperback, so they're not $150 from TNT Clark. You can actually afford these. So I, I commend you to go get them before we even talk about it because they, they're actually excellent. So Dr. Allen, before we jump into discussing these volumes, tell me a little bit about yourself. And then maybe what was it that got you into thinking about things like theological method or, or the doctrine of God and issues related to that? Yeah, Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invite, and uh, I'm glad to get to talk about these things. Um, So I'm a seminary professor and a a Presbyterian pastor. I'm a a husband and a son and a father. Uh, I'm an amateur golfer and a basketball enthusiast. Um, And uh, I've been teaching at RTS for eight and a half years now, having previously taught elsewhere, uh, having lived in the South, the Midwest, and my beloved South Florida. And uh, one of the things that has struck me throughout uh, over two decades now of theological study and reflection at an academic level has been the the interplay. Uh, I've observed in my own experience as as a student and now as a, a teacher, the way in which I'll learn something about a particular topic 
And then I'll realize that the way in which I'm approaching it has to modify or change if I'm going to advance further. And so I'll, I'll think about my craft and method a bit and, and, and study how to go about reflection well. And then I'll find that that actually has payoff again for the way I look at various topics. It's, it's simply to suggest that method and material are very much interwoven. The way we look at, the way we think about things, it does open up or close down uh, attentiveness and analysis of various realities. And that's true in, in a host of fields. That's so very true in theology, um, where not only your intellect, but your will, your very being, your soul are involved as you seek to know the living and true God. And so, uh, you know, thinking about these topics is in a very real sense chasing down some particular lines of thought about what's been a constant challenge for me as a theological pilgrim over years, trying to learn more about Christology or salvation or creation or the character of the triune God and realizing I need to think better about how I'm going about thinking and reading and studying and, and conversing and, and then finding that opens up new opportunities and, and back and forth and so forth. And, and so hopefully these two volumes uh, each contribute something Hopefully, though, they also uh, impinge upon one another in a, a very real sense that's evident. One thing that really struck me when I'm reading these volumes is the, the serious attention that you give to each sort of disciplinary aspect. Oftentimes when I read works of theology, it does seem like certain aspects are sidelined, particularly scripture in some ways. And not intentionally. I don't think most people who are doing theology in that way are trying to sideline scripture. It, but just the way you go about it, I, I really, really appreciate it, and it encouraged me and challenged me. So as we think about theological method, maybe we just talk about at the beginning, when we talk about that, what do we mean? Is there a consistent pattern that we can discern through the history of the church that we'd say the church, for the most part, has always thought about the, the theological method question this way? Has it developed, changed, splintered, those sort of things? Yes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, on the one hand, you could look at artifacts of theological reflection from around the globe today and through the centuries, and they might look so very different. Uh, it's one thing to, to pick up an early Christian homily by a church father. It's a very different thing to look at an early medieval text offering an account of the entire Christian faith for someone newly uh, inquiring and soon to be baptized. Uh, it's a still different thing to consider a, a scholastic or academic treatise from the 12th or 13th century at a, a medieval university. And, and then in the modern era to consider a technical commentary on some book of the Bible or a, a major doctrinal uh, or systematic text they might look like very different genres. And we might think that there is just no core, no center. Um, and there's more to that, too. There, there really are disagreements amongst Christians about precisely what we're doing in certain senses, precisely how we best do this thing called theology. That said, I do think we can acknowledge there, there is a central core and a certain set of elements to Christian theological practice uh, that, that are still debated in some sense, especially when you get to finer detail 
but at least in general terms are prominent. And maybe a, a perhaps surprising way to get at this would be to say uh, that Christian theology always seeks to honor both the first and the fifth commandment. Uh, Christian theology is first about honoring the first commandment, uh, having no other God but the living and true God, the triune God revealed in Scripture, and therefore God's voice and the voice of God's emissaries, the prophets and apostles, uh, plays a primary role. Obviously, there are disagreements between, say, Roman Catholics and various Protestants about precisely how that's to be understood. Uh, but, but nonetheless, that's an attempt to honor God's authority ultimately and thus to heed his scripture. Uh, at the same time, everybody's seeking to acknowledge in some fashion the fifth commandment. Spiritually, we want to honor our fathers and mothers. We want to glean from those who've gone before us. And again, there are disagreements in various traditions about precisely how to understand this, but it's the basic idea that we don't come to Scripture uh, apart from others who have come to Scripture before us and alongside us and who have showed us how to go to Scripture. And so we, we go as those who are formed and shaped, those who can lean on those who've gone before us, um, who've trained us to turn to it expectantly and repentantly. Um, there's a host of other things we could say about core elements of theological method, but those would be a couple things to highlight that in some fashion, all Christian groups are going to try and try and honor. One question I have on your book, The Fear of the Lord, obviously it's in the title. You also have essays at the beginning, or I guess chapters at the beginning, relating to this sort of idea. What does it mean for a theologian or even a pastor or anybody who's doing the work of theology to fear the Lord in that project? Yeah, I, I, there's probably a couple things we ought to say by way of definition just to make sense of, of even the nature of the question. The first would be the Bible talks about fear in a lot of different ways. And theologians through the ages have pointed out there are different kinds of fear that the Bible uh, classifies in various ways. So there's a there's a sort of fear and anxiety of God's judgment and wrath uh, that's been referred to as a servile fear. And we learn from 1 John that perfect love casts out that sort of fear. Uh, that's not something you want to sustain throughout your Christian life. That's appropriate for a non-believer, of course. Uh, it plays a key role in them learn coming under conviction. But for the Christian, perfect love casts that out. But there are other ways fear is talked about. Um, we bring holiness to completion through the fear of the Lord, as Paul tells the Corinthians. Psalm 19 says, uh, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And as, as you quoted, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And uh, beginning there doesn't mean the inception point. It means the foundation. And therefore, it's not something you move past. It's something you always stand upon. And so there is this filial or childlike fear that is to continually mark the life of a Christian. Well, what does that mean and how does that affect theology? It means not that our knees shake before God. It means rather that our eyes always attentively are mindful of how God is involved, what God is doing, uh, who God is in the midst of our life and experience. Uh, it is it is to have a theocentric or a Godward mentality 
God is always the most interesting character in any question or scenario. Um, And for a theologian, it, it may sound surprising, but that is not always a simple or obvious reality. It's very easy even for theologians to be tempted to say things about God and to move on to other things, other things that wider culture might value, other things that we might feel pressing uh, in our daily need, other things that we might have great interest or longing to explore. And so it's, it's in this vein that, you know, 20-something years ago, John Webster called for a theological theology. And I think in a very real sense, that's another way of expressing what it means to do theology in the fear of the Lord, to always be asking not, you know, what can I say about all the topics that interest me, but rather to be watching always, fastidiously, insistently, how do I speak well of God? How do I attend to God? Um, And that means, how do I turn away from distraction and only come back to it in light of what I know of God? So uh, just to kind of piggyback off that, one of the things I most appreciated about the fear of the Lord um, was your discussion on um, ascetical dogmatics. And I think for most of our, most of our listeners, they might associate ascetics with something like, you know, perhaps Roman Catholic monks or something like that. But you make the case that dogmatics serves discipleship, inviting us to rightly order our affections and resist idolatry. And I, um, I just thought it would be very, um, useful maybe for our listeners to to hear from you. What's your vision of ascetic, ascetical dogmatic? And you brought up John Webster. You contrast Webster's approach from Sarah Coakley in the book. And I just thought that would be very interesting uh, to, to hear you expand on that. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jacob. That's something I, I really do want to highlight. Um, theology involves the whole person. Theology is not just intellectual, it's spiritual. And theology is a part, it should be a part of the process of sanctification uh, in the intellectual realm. And asceticism plays a key role there. Um, Asceticism simply speaks to the, the call to deny oneself certain goods for the sake of greater goods. Not merely to turn from evil or sinful things, but even to sacrifice certain legitimate goods so that one can pursue a greater good. And you're right. I think a lot of people assume that that must take some monastic form um, or that Protestants and Reformed Protestants like me ought to be opposed to that. Uh, I think that's unfortunate, but that's also understandable for a lot of reasons. Uh, It's not necessary, though, and I don't think it's helpful. The Bible calls us to self-denial and to ascetical practices, And we see even the great reformers in the Protestant world commend that. They simply want to call all Christians to it, not just a subclass, uh, a higher sort of Navy SEAL elite uh, who might take on a a higher council or a monastic vocation. Calvin and others wanted all Christians to exercise biblical evangelical asceticism. And so I, I think we need to think about ways in which we are tempted to care about other goods that aren't wrong in and of themselves, and they're valid for humans to concern themselves with. Some people need to, but if we're to be theologians, we also need to be willing to say no to those lesser goods to fix our minds upon that greatest good. 
and to be attentive. Um, and so there, there's a host of ways in which that can potentially shape how we go about exploring. Uh, in that one essay you mentioned, I, I contrasted the approach of John Webster, who was a mentor and friend, with that of Sarah Coakley. And it's interesting because Coakley um, also commends the idea of theology as asceticism. Uh, for her, however, that, that involves theology really turning anywhere and everywhere to find ways where we might be chastened uh, and led to repentance. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, that's not going to work, or at least that's not going to work as effectively. That's going to be remarkably hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas Webster commends a much more classical, reformed, and Catholic account uh, where we're looking to Holy Scripture, we're paying attention to the creeds and confessions of the church, uh, we are not seeking to somehow study any and everything and have a theological take on it. First, we're, we're attending to the center of the circle, and only then, in light of that, being discipled and shaped by it, are we going to look outward and reflect on how other things relate? And so it, it is a rather different notion of sort of intense attention being directed in certain places as opposed to a varied and just intentionally diverse attention scattered amongst all sorts of, of objects of study. Um, and that can be useful in a university context for various characters to have diverse expertise. Uh, and yet, if it's going to be a university, and if anyone is going to be a theologian in it, they need to have a, a more focused attention. And all need to have a sense of, of what actually draws together the various strands of thought. And the theologian is called to exemplify that. So there, there really is this need to deny other curiosities to some extent for the sake of single-minded devotion. That's very good. I, I am curious to, to follow up with this a little bit. We've mentioned the, the context of the university and the theologian there. How does theology work out in the life of the local church? What does that look like? It seems like it's not traditionally the vocation of every church member to have to be a traditional theologian. So what is the calling of each church member versus others like theologians or pastors? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one text that that has and I think should continue to shape our thought is Ephesians 4, where the ascended Christ gives gifts that he measures out to each person. And that tells us something about Christ. He's not done giving grace. He's measuring out and allotting the grace we need. It goes on to name one of the gifts. It, it names apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, people who start and sustain churches by ministering the word of God. They're a gift of Christ, not just a ingenious sort of idea of Christians later. Um, it says, though, that they're a gift to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I and others who are involved in that kind of teaching and pastoring role are uh, we don't do all the theologizing, but we do play a role in equipping the saints, all Christians, uh, to go about the work of diakonia, service, ministry to one another, to building up the body um, in love. And, and that means that you do need to have educated leaders who are going to be capable of offering wise and perceptive 
interpretation of Scripture, theological training that will equip the saints. But the saints are on the front lines, and the saints themselves are meant to think theologically. And uh, I think we need to reassert the significance, not just of an educated clergy, which we have to make an argument for today in the day of the death of expertise. We also need to go further and argue for the, the necessity of an educated laity, because the, the ordained characters mentioned there, they don't serve as gurus. They don't make all decisions. They equip and they exercise authority in a very focused and constrained way, teaching what the Bible says, all of it, and no more. But life requires more. Life requires taking biblical teaching and principle and assessing situation, reading its history, gleaning what's going on interpersonally, economically, politically, scientifically, and coming up with real policies on-the-ground decisions, and that involves a range of other sorts of knowledges that a pastor isn't expert in, and that lay people need to, to bring their own gifts and their own knowledge and steward that well, and we shouldn't be surprised if they sometimes even differ in their discernments. Um, and so we, we have the high calling in the church of not only fostering a serious culture of educating clergy to equip, but then of clergy equally calling laymen and laywomen to be educated and equipped so that they can assess theologically how they parent well, how they act as citizens or rulers well, how they uh, go about their, their daily employment, wherever it may be, uh, in the workplace or at home, how they uh, interact in the neighborhood in the city, uh, how they parent uh, all those various things, uh, that they would be capable of discernment and good judgment, that kind of maturity that Ephesians 4 goes on to commend, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, and so that's a high calling, and we need God's grace. We also need intentional focus on what we're after, uh, developing a theological culture that forms people well and equips them to that task. Another question I want to ask is related to, it's related to these, I guess, what you're doing in these books, but you also have an, a standalone volume with Scott Swain on, I don't reform Catholicity, the kind of like the promise of retrieval. I, I'm wondering when we talk about retrieval, which I think most of our listeners are pretty well aware of this sort of idea, what is it? Are there different variations of the project of retrieval? Is Sarah Coakley someone who would, we'd say, yes, she's doing retrieval, or is she doing something different? Examples like that, and then help me understand why it has such promise for strong, healthy theology. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think we've got to say, first of all, uh, retrieval is not new, and it's not homogenous. Uh, retrieval is it's happening around the globe and in various Christian traditions. Uh, it's not only a Christian or a theological thing. T.S. Eliot can talk about tradition and the individual talent and how reflecting on the aesthetics of literature, uh, the seeming savant actually is schooled to do what you might think is spontaneous. Um, we can think musically of how those who improvise well are actually really well trained by the rhythmic patterns of playing the scales. Um, in the theological world, retrieval is basically this notion that we need in some way to resource our 
reflection in the present with wisdom from the past. Uh, there are a whole host of disagreements about why we do that, about where we do that, and about how we do that. Uh, some people basically have sociological reasons. Uh, you're shaped by the past, therefore you'd best understand the past. Not false. There's something to that, but that's not a terribly theological reason to care about retrieval, nor is it a particularly hope-inspiring prompt for going about retrieval. Um, Scott Swain, my colleague, and I have wanted to argue that we have distinctly theological reasons modeled and mandated in Holy Scripture itself that suggest the value of paying attention to the past. So just one example. Think of Hebrews 11 to 13. Uh, Hebrews 12 begins calling us uh, to run the race set before us. But it says we're to run the race set before us, mindful of so great a cloud of witnesses. And chapter 11, it illustrates that great cloud of witnesses, people in the courtroom who testify to Jesus's goodness. It's all those saints innumerable, the many famous ones, um, you know, the, the Noahs and the Abrams and the Sarahs and the Rahabs, but, but innumerable others who can't be named by the end of the chapter all of whom by faith did various things that attest to the trustworthiness of God and his Christ. Um, we're to run our race now and here, wherever that is, mindful of them, learning of their testimony. It goes on to say we're to run our race looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the ultimate and the only sinless exemplar who we can look to, whose faith can be a model um, who we can imitate uh, with no worry whatsoever that will lead us astray. But then third, we can look further ahead to Hebrews 13, and it says, Remember your leaders, those who taught you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is talking about people closer to home who've taught you. It could be uh, that pastor when you were a child, or it could be uh, the parent who taught you the faith. It could be the older saint who discipled you. Uh, consider those who ended well. The outcome of their way of life was good. Don't follow their idiosyncrasies. Don't try and live like you are of a prior generation. Imitate their faith, that which is central and, and elemental to their, their communion with God in Christ. Uh, and you, you can do that with confidence because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The faith that they lived will work today because the Christ they trusted is not changing. And so that's a, a theological maxim or principle that underlies the whole notion, whether I'm looking back at Abraham, the great Old Testament paradigm of faith in Romans 4 and James 2 and so forth, or I'm looking back to the dear saint who was a senior citizen when I was a youth and whose faith I've learned much from. In each of those cases and everything in between, I'm not trying to copy them. I'm not trying to pretend as if I live in their day and age. I'm trying to watch how they believed Christ, how they knew God, and how they loved those around them and to do so in a non-identical but truly analogous fashion now because Christ isn't changing 
and God isn't shifting. And so that gives me real hope that I can actually be helped and I can actually glean from them something that's a truer depiction of reality, of who God is and what it would be like for me to live before him and dependent upon him. Yeah, so I've got to follow up on this idea of dependence upon others. So I think in our current context, even just evangelicals in general, there seems to be some sort of like, I don't know, incipient worry or anxiety related to relying on sources outside of scripture, particularly ideas like tradition, however you end up defining that. How is it that the interplay between the authority of Scripture works with other authorities like maybe it's my grandmother or maybe it's a great theological authority like Calvin or something like that? And does potentially encountering their work and, and even being catechized in particular ways prior to understanding Scripture violate something sacred about things like sola scriptura? I think these questions seem to come up quite a bit right now, so I'd love to hear some wisdom on that. Yeah. Uh, You know, one thing that often has been said to to Bible students in college or seminary is, you know, don't read a commentary. Read the passage and study it before you go to a commentary. Uh, There can be moments when that's helpful for a particular exercise. Let me suggest that's actually a bad guidance, and it's indicative of a bigger problem. Um, we are, we are not well resourced. And on top of that, we are not particularly sanctified or spiritual as we'd like to be. And so we have our finite limitations and we have our fallen distortions. And so I, I'm not choosing between reading some imperfect person's thoughts on scripture or having a perfect engagement with scripture myself. I'm, I'm left either with reading scripture with no help but my own finite and fallen perceptions and what grace God gives me, or doing that with the guidance of a dear older saint, of a, a wiser figure from the past, of someone who knows things I don't know. Now, of course, reading another person doesn't fate you to say they're right on everything. Uh, The goal isn't to take up a tribe or to enlist in a a particular school. I'm of so-and-so. It's rather simply to gain the perspective of someone else that they might lead you to deeper questions and further insights as you engage Scripture. So let's be honest. Most of us don't read Scripture directly before we talk to other people or hear about Christianity, whether it's mom and dad or it's chatter on the news, or it's a sermon you hear. Most people, both those who grew up in the church and those who grew up very far apart from it, they have notions of Christianity that they've gleaned from somewhere before they read Scripture. That's that's not rare. That's standard and typical. Nothing wrong with that, so long as they're led to Scripture. So long as whatever they're told by their their friend, their parent, their pastor, is pointing them ultimately both to its ultimate authority coming from God and Scripture and to equipping them eventually to engage Scripture themselves. And so you actually look at the Reformers. 
and, and great figures in the 16th century, the, the people who we might think they just want you to read the Bible and nothing else, they actually point out regularly you need to be trained to read the Bible. Um, that's a good thing. That's a human thing. That's a Christian thing. That's not a bad thing or something to be fearful. Now, there are reasons we're fearful. There's bad tradition. And there is a, a sort of authoritarianism that doesn't encourage people to check it by Scripture, but actively discourages that. There is guru think, and we live in a guru culture, and, and we ought to be mindful of that. That there, there is no pure teacher who has it all right. Uh, there is no figure whose thought you can just latch on to. Uh, that we always and everywhere need to be Berean and turn back and check even a great preacher as they found in Paul uh, going back and, and sourcing it in Scripture. Uh, the fifth commandment's vital, honor your father and mother, but it always comes after the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. God's authority is always ultimate. It just may not be the first in your experience. And it may often be the case for your good that others are helping you find your way back to Scripture and see more in Scripture than you otherwise would. Uh, that's not a sign of Scripture's limits. That's a sign of your limits, my limits. Um, you know, and I think uh, in a very real sense, uh, to, to go about the task of retrieval and to listen to voices around us and those who've gone before us, um, in a very real sense, we're just reading them, whether it's Augustine's Confessions or Calvin's Institutes or Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we're reading them as attempts to hear Scripture well. And so we read them not just for what they say, but for what sense it gives us of what Scripture teaches. And they're, none of them, pure and sinless and whole. They're all flawed and finite. Uh, but goodness, they can still help us. Um, just as a good parent is still marked by sin and by constraint, and yet, goodness, I'm great, grateful to have been parented well and to have benefited from not trying to become a human uh, and a mature one on my own. That, that would have been terrible. Um, so it is with being a Bible reader, a theological thinker, a Christian. I want to be grateful for that. Uh, I want to be faithful in pursuing that, uh, and I want to pass that on to future generations to whatever extent I can, too. Jacob, I don't want to take all the time, but I've got another question I want to ask. You talk in one of these essays about a Christian doctrine of creation and how it necessitates that all sources of thought be taken seriously, and it reminds me of the, you know, the idea of plundering the Egyptians. How do we do that as Christians? That seems to be something that has a lot of confusion, misunderstanding. Like, there are all sorts of examples. I'm not going to ask you to talk about these, but I mean, people, when it comes up, they're like, oh, critical race theory, can we use this as an analytical tool or not? All sorts of things related to that where we're not sure where this boundary line is of what can I plunder, what can't I plunder, how should I go about that? Yeah, and there, I, I think we'd have to say there are lots of various cases that are not exactly equivalent in different ways. So you'd want to you'd want to assess in slightly different ways and in, in different spheres. That said, just a couple reference points that perhaps are helpful. Uh, God made all of us, and all of us is meant 
to image God. Um, that is, God didn't just make a soul and, oh dear, you know, unfortunately it, it, it found its way to be housed in a body. Um, God didn't just make certain people with an intellectual vocation and they've got to be supported by others who work the field or have babies or defend uh, the city or something. Uh, God made all of us, and all of us is meant to reflect him in some fashion. But of course, we can image God well or poorly. You can be an accurate mirror, or you can be a funhouse clownish mirror at a circus. Uh, and so the, the reality is, of course, uh, as we look around, as we seek to, to perceive God, looking at the whole theater of his glory, as Calvin puts it, we have to acknowledge both that, that he can be perceived in and through all things. This is my father's world, uh, and he does shine in all that's fair. And yet we experience all of it, too, is fallen. And so there is the need to discern. Uh, there is the need to discern the, the spirits and to discern uh, the way in which God is, is revealed uh, and perceived rightly in creation, in the human psyche, uh, in the way we relate interpersonally or sociologically. Uh, and therefore, there's need for really talented and faithful Christians in a variety of fields. And uh, theology is going to be focused on Scripture and attempts to understand Scripture in a way to equip Christians to go do the work of psychology and sociology and history and, and physical sciences and so forth. Um, but it's not going to do so in a domineering way. It's going to be directive because God and God's word are directive. But God doesn't, in God's word, tell us everything we need to know. Uh, I sometimes need to know how to operate my computer, and God's word does not tell me. I, I have principles for how I should and shouldn't use my computer. I shouldn't bear false witness on it. But that doesn't exactly get me through installing the latest app or program. Um, and so I've got to go elsewhere. I, I need to find experts who can help me, something a little more reliable than the YouTube video. Um, and, uh, you know, so those are important things. We need Christians who have biblical wisdom, theological equipping, and yet professional expertise in IT and the like. Uh, I've had surgery. I want a, a humane and moral surgeon, but I also want a surgeon who knows with expertise how to cut me open for my benefit, not my harm. Um, and in a very real sense, that's the calling to take every thought captive to Christ, uh, that we would seek to understand things as they are, both in minute detail, as well as in the widest possible vantage point of how they connect to other areas of life, to the wider world, to other humans, and most of all, to God Almighty. And that's beyond any one of us. But that's something we're together as a body, composed of many parts, we're, we're called to pursue. And that's something that has demanded great time, and we're with fits and starts, struggling and striving to do better, sometimes succeeding and moving forward, sometimes faltering and buying into lies and, and, and falling backward. Um, but that's, it's an ongoing challenge and task. And it's one we can observe. It's not new. Christians have faced it. You know, with the rise of this or that philosophy, this or that discipline, this or that change 
in the intellectual and moral climate of various cultures that Christians have faced. It's something even present in the Bible itself, where we see people engaging other thought. You alluded to the plundering of the Egyptians. Uh, we could observe other ways in which Greek philosophy or Stoic ethics, various realities are being engaged, sifted, discerned, and in certain ways put to use, good use, better use, use that glorifies God and helps his people. Uh, Dr. Allen, just I'm very intrigued by what you were just talking about. And I was wondering um, if you see a difference between what you just articulated and um, what, what I grew up with as a homeschooled teenager was almost this pursuit of um, trying to identify the Christian worldview and filter everything through that, where you had theologians almost placing themselves as the gatekeepers of of everything like you said psychology where they would filter everything through their <clears throat> excuse me their their theological commitments do you see do you see a difference between that kind of pursuit and what you just articulated um yeah i i think there can be though it's not an utter and complete difference or separation i i think we've got to distinguish uh what it means to honor the bible's authority um from honoring some presumption about the Bible's authority and what we think it must deliver. In other words, the Bible is the ultimate and final authority, and it is perfect and whole and sufficient for what it means to do. But it doesn't mean to do everything. And so we've got to be alert to what are its stated purposes. That's how it doesn't return void. Right. But there are lots of things it's not purposing to do. And so... Uh, you know, there was a period of time where part of the Bible did provide a full constitution for a people. The book of Deuteronomy, it offered a theocratic sketch for a particular season. We do not live in that season. No one presently lives in that season. Deuteronomy is still remarkably helpful. It shapes biblical principle. It gives us what folks in the Reformed traditions speak of as the notion of general equity. Um, but but I live in a different land and I have Christian brothers and sisters, friends that I know who live in other different lands. And none of them are that experience of Israelite theocracy where God delivered a constitution from on high. That doesn't mean that I or my friends in Indonesia or in the United Kingdom shouldn't be looking to Deuteronomy and the rest of scripture for biblical principles and for a variety of ways through its different genres uh, that the Bible is going to shape our political engagement. Absolutely. Um, and so we need to always in every sphere ask, how does the Bible through commandment and proverb, through narrative, uh, through psalm and story, how in all its genres does it impinge on some subject? But we also need to be very candid about not having an overdetermined sense of what the Bible delivers. It often offers principles which can be fleshed out in a variety of ways. Um, and we need to acknowledge at that point, we've got to wisely seek knowledge and expertise and help from those who can help us make informed judgments about how to take biblical principle and turn it into lived policy. You know, the Bible speaks of ways we ought to care and value the poor, and we ought to be willing to sacrifice for their sake as a general principle. And it's a high register of how our, 
our loyalty to God is assessed. The prophets tell us this regularly. Jesus tells us this more than anyone else. That's not to say the Bible lays out a complete philanthropic system or a governmental plan for welfare care. Both of those can be good things, perhaps. Both of those may be necessary things. We're going to have to involve others, though, to flesh out biblical principles in the way we're going to care for the poor. Uh, I need to go talk to an economist. I need to be mindful of political realities local to that situation, and not every situation is the same. Mindful of geography and natural resources and, and the history of a locality. And that's more than I, as a theologian, you know, have expertise in. Uh, and so that means I'm going to often have to turn to uh, a roommate from college who teaches economics or to a wise doctor or to someone who knows the history of an area and learn from them. And uh, sometimes we'll disagree. We'll agree on the biblical principle of caring for the poor. We'll have disagreements about the best, most prudent way to do that here or there. And there we need to have humility. We need to have charity. We need to realize that people can... They can have different assessments of the situation on the ground and still hopefully have the same ultimate concern to love neighbor as a way of loving God. Uh, and hopefully we can encourage one another, even where we have those disagreements, how can we each have better versions of our own policy? How can we glean from each other, even if we don't wind agreeing with each other in every way? And goodness, that's a challenge. Uh, our wider culture doesn't help us in that regard. It polarizes us and weaponizes things. And too often, churches and Christians learn from that, don't they? So we've got, we've got a tall order before us. Uh, one other question I'd love for you to catch. I was trying to look through it for where you talk about this in your book, and I have no idea where it is. So if I— That may be two of us. If I restate this poorly, <laughs> you, you can tell me that— uh, at some point, somewhere, you talk about ways that modern theology has restated epistemology, uh, where it has commended sort of technical mastery and objective protocols over intellectual and theological virtues that are unhealthy, unwise. I, um, and a lot of times in some of my own work, have pushed back against the all modern is bad because I look at like, well, look at these neo-Calvinists. There's a resurgence of this. There's some cool stuff here that I think is useful. Um, I would categorize John Webster as a modern theologian, um, though he's not doing the sort of like modernistic project. So I'm just trying to understand, like, in what ways has there been a trajectory in modern theology to do bad things? And is that like some sort of toxic sludge that has got corroded every single thing that's there? Yeah, that's a great and I think a really perceptive question. Uh, the problem is not modernity nor is the answer the pre-modern, the medieval, the classical. Um, though what people sometimes gesture at in using those terms can be really important, and I, I don't mean to d dismiss that. Um, uh, you know, there were massive troubles and wide, diverse views and approaches in the medieval world and in the, the era of late antiquity and the patristic era, and there's still wide diversity of approaches today. Um, I think what you're probably alluding to, and I confess authors don't always remember exactly what they write either, uh, is, is common about the way in which the scientific method, because of its remarkable success in doing so many wonderful things technologically, medicinally, um, the way in which it has been aggressively applied 
uh, in other fields beyond certain sciences where it most naturally and originally has its home. And, and that can have the unfortunate effect of people doing theology as if studying God is like studying the atom or a wave. Um, the way in which uh, we study God has to befit the object of our study, uh, just as the way in which we seek to understand the, the nature of a an environment or the, the human psyche has to match the object of study. And uh, I, I do think there has been a profound struggle, particularly in a number of um, forms of theology that have found their home in, in sort of university culture in the modern West, the sort of transatlantic, North Atlantic world, where we have likened it, whether it's studying scripture, we've likened it to reading any classic text. Uh, studying the Christian tradition has really become studying sociology of religion uh, and the, the history of religion in late antiquity or in the medieval world or the early modern world. Um, we have failed to treat it as a spiritual enterprise as well. Not that it's less than those other things. We really do study historical texts. We really do want to glean from people in particular contexts shaped by and reacting to real situations that we, we want to learn about contextually and historically. But more's going on. More's going on because in, in engaging with the pursuit of the knowledge of God, uh, we as creatures, we as sinners, we as saints in Christ uh, ourselves are part of the equation. And so this really is the terrain of sanctification, of discipleship, uh, and we need to think of it in those terms. Not only in those terms, we, we use the tools and concepts of, of other intellectual disciplines that are adjacent. We glean from that. That's a way to plunder the Egyptians. But we don't do it naively, and we certainly don't do it narrowly. Uh, we want to prioritize the way the Bible describes the pursuit of the knowledge of God, the language of the fear of the Lord, of humility, of distinctively Christian virtues like faith, hope, and love. And though others talk about various virtues and even intellectual virtues, those don't always line up completely with the Christian virtuous picture. Um, most obviously, humility. Uh, not celebrated by the Greeks and the Romans, and yet absolutely ingredient. If I want to know God the way that Jesus, as the incarnate Son, knows God, if I, if I want to be conformed to the image of God revealed in Jesus Christ, including intellectually, I need to, to pursue that kind of humility by God's grace. And that's elemental. And that's strange to the wider world. Paul tells the Corinthians there that, you know, that's wisdom from God, but it's foolishness to others, both as a message about what Christ does in our place, but also how he models the human way for us, the humble way. And, uh, you know, that spiritual approach to the theological task is absolutely not just ingredient, but prioritized. I think we need to remember that. Yeah. Before we close, I, I would love for you to give maybe one or two pieces of advice for aspiring theologians. We have a lot of listeners who are in graduate school who are considering vocations such as that, as well as a lot of pastors who are interested in doing more pastoral, pastoral theology, um, being their own theologians to their own local churches. So what might you advise them, potentially warn them? Uh, yeah, uh, 
honor to get to say anything to any of them. That's such a, a glorious and great and joyful calling to consider. Uh, I would suggest they just think of wholeness and to think of it in two ways. In one sense, uh, don't be satisfied with anything less than wholeness. And by that I mean don't be content simply to fixate on one thing or one figure or one topic. Um, the whole counsel of God matters. And if you don't range widely, you won't even understand the little bit accurately in proportion and in, in, in relative sense to others. So if you realize you don't know the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, start reading your Old Testament. If you realize you don't know uh, the Gospels as well as Paul, lean into studying the Gospels and gleaning from those who've done it well. Uh, if, if you realize you know modern uh, questions well, but not reformational or medieval or, or early Christian ones, read those things that are less familiar. That's a way of pursuing wholeness. At the same time, I would suggest have a sense of the long haul, kind of the whole course of a theological pilgrimage. Uh, it's a long game, not a sprint. And so make some good big goals and incrementally work at them. Uh, don't be content to be beholden to the big question on the Internet or the big crisis at your church or school. Uh, think through, you know, a figure you'd like to read through. And be content to say, I'll give myself even years to do it, but I'm going to slowly chip away and read my way through Luther or through Augustine. And uh, you can do less in the one year than you'd think, but goodness, in five years, you can do more than you'd imagine. And what you'll do will serve you not just in those five years, but it will set you up so much more, exponentially more, for years six through ten. And it'll pay dividends down the long haul of decades to come. And so I'd say think widely, make big goals, but also think incrementally and about the, the persevering pilgrimage over the long haul. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, Jacob, I'm sorry I dominated all the questions. I just had uh, so many things I wanted to learn. So we'll have to do another interview and let Jacob ask all the questions. <laughs> I guess. Um, for those who've been listening, you know, I'm going to I'm going to list some of the links to the resources that we've mentioned so far. So you can just click them and go there and get them. Uh, I think Dr. Allen is one of the most important theologians today. I know he won't say that himself, but I will. So go get his stuff, read it. Um, it's, it's just his comments about wholeness, kind of like that's really what I think about him uh, and the project that he's pursuing. So I, I love it. I commend it. And I really appreciate what he's doing so thanks for joining us and everybody's been listening thanks for tuning in to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.